But let's uh, pray now as we come to this passage. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is true. Your word is living and it gives us life. And your word gives us direction about how we are to, uh, to operate and to love one another as your people in this world. We ask, Father, as we look at this passage today, a passage that uh, has been controversial uh, for many over, over the years, that you will give us a clarity and you'll give us a strong sense of uh, the leading of your spirit uh, as we hear you speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, uh, this section of 1 Corinthians 11 to 14 uh, is dealing with uh, big issues that have potential to divide rather than unify the church. Uh, it wasn't just the case in first century, century Corinth that there were divisions over these issues, but uh, as history has shown, uh, divisions can happen today. The first we saw was the matter of the participation of women in worship. Uh, The second we saw last week was the matter of the Lord's Supper and the significance of that meal. And this week and the next uh, two weeks, this matter of spiritual gifts. It's been an especially controversial and divisive issue uh, in the last 100 years or so with the rise of the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement. And so sadly the teaching here that's designed to bring unity to the church uh, has often been misused and twisted or maybe even ignored in a way that's actually brought about disunity. So we need to approach this passage carefully and prayerfully and to, uh, to navigate it uh, seeking the Lord's wisdom. The first thing for us to be aware of is that uh, in verse 1, spiritual gifts, that phrase there, is in the Greek, it's simply the word spirituals. So the word gift there isn't actually in in the Greek. This word spirituals, it could mean gifts, it could mean spiritual people, it could mean spiritual things, it could mean spiritual experiences. And it was a word that was in wide use in Corinth. It was used in the pagan religions. Uh, These religions involved all kinds of mystical and ecstatic rituals, spiritual experiences that you would go through as you climbed the spiritual ladder towards enlightenment. As you climbed the ladder, you became a more spiritual person. You were able to have spiritual insight into the mysteries of the universe and you would uh, know more and more and more than the people who were lower down than you on this spiritual ladder. Now that kind of thinking actually isn't too different to modern spirituality in the sense that it was about Uh, myself and how I am able to become a spiritual person and become more spiritual if I work at it. You might remember in the last census, hopefully that's readable, that there was a 
a, a big change in those who selected no religion. As you can see at the bottom there, 30.1% of Australians said no religion. There was a, quite a push by some people to say tick the no religion category rather than just pick the religion that you were brought up in or the denomination that you have a, 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 a loose affiliation with maybe because you were baptised or because you went to a church school. So in 2016, 30% said no religion. Compared to 1966, that's quite a significant change. As you can see, in 1966, 0.8% of Australians ticked no religion. So 90% of Australians in 1966 identified with a religion. Today it's down to 60%. And it's also a fact that of the 52% of Australians who identify with Christianity, only about a fifth of those attend church at least once a month. And even fewer, no doubt, have any sense of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But there's other research that's showing that a large proportion of Australians, including, interestingly, younger Australians, still believe in things like life after death, a supernatural realm, a higher power. They're not atheists, even though they take no religion. They would identify with the term spiritual, but not religious. Ticking the no religion box doesn't mean people don't believe anything. It simply means they don't connect with an organised religion, which for most of Australians means the church. Now, we don't have to have time to explore all the possible reasons why this trend is happening. People are rejecting organised religion even though they still believe in some kind of spiritual ideas. But one of the big reasons is because modern spirituality says that you do it yourself. Just like every other aspect of your identity, you, you shouldn't let other people tell you what to believe or how to live. So you make up your own mind. You pick the beliefs and the values that you think best suits you. So to be spiritual means I have in myself this capacity to tap into the spiritual realm through whatever ritual or meditation or philosophy or artistic expression or whatever it is that I, I choose myself to express my spirituality through. But the Bible doesn't actually describe human beings as being essentially spiritual. We're creatures made from dust. And because we're dust, we're mortal. And we will return to the dust 
unless we're kept alive by some external power. So we only live and move and have our being because God has breathed into us the breath of life. We're dependent upon the Spirit for both our physical life and our spiritual life. So the Bible speaks of a a truly spiritual person, not as someone with spiritual capacity, but as someone who is living in right relationship with the Holy Spirit. Someone who's filled with the Spirit, who's directed by the Spirit, who's worshipping the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. So when we think of spirituality, we shouldn't think of it as kind of an abstract power or a way of being or a way of connecting with the non-physical, spiritual realm. But rather we should think of it as a relational dynamic that comes from knowing the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the person, the third person of the Godhead. He himself is the fullness of God dwelling in us and with us. This is the the Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters at creation and in response to the Father's command, let there be light, the Spirit worked in unison with the Son and separated the waters from the waters and the sea and the dry land and brought about the order and the goodness of the creation. The Holy Spirit isn't a supernatural being. The Holy Spirit is not just accessible through spiritual practices or rituals or experiences. He's as much present and at work in this world as is the Father and the Son and just as much as he is sovereign and beyond and outside of this world. He's not just involved in the things that we label as spiritual, worship, prayer, church, Bible reading, but all of life. That's why Paul could say back in 6 verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is the change that Paul wants the Corinthians to make as they think about how the Spirit is at work among them. So he uses their word, spirituals, at the start. And probably that's the word that they use when they wrote to him to say, Paul, what about spirituals? But he wants to change their thinking. And so he also changes their vocabulary, as we'll see in a moment. But firstly, he gives a a potted summary of the spirituality of the culture in which they lived and out of which most of them had come. He says, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. He's saying that regardless of the, the brand of the religion that they were in, 
They all had this in common. They were idolaters. And what characterised these idols is that they were mute. Why is it this particular aspect of idols that he's focusing on? Well, here he's alluding to Psalm 115. Psalm 115 from verse 2 says, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. This is the folly of idolatry. The nations looked at Israel and thought Israel were fools because they worshipped a God that they couldn't see. Their God forbade them to make any kind of image to use in worship. Yet, Israel's God is sovereign over all things. He's in the heavens. He does as he pleases. He is active. He's living. On the other hand, the the nations might claim that they can see their gods because they have a visible image in front of them. Yet these images, these idols are impotent. They're unable to speak or see or hear or smell or feel or walk. And then the crunch comes there in verse 8. Those who make them and those who trust in them become like them. You'll ultimately come to resemble whomever you worship. If you worship an idol, you become like it, impotent, useless, unable to speak or see or hear or do anything good. But if you worship the true and living God, the Father who sent his Son in the power of the Spirit, what happens? You become transformed to become like the Son a child of the Father, living in the fullness of the Spirit. That's the Father's goal for us, to be transformed into the image of Jesus through worshipping Jesus. And that's the fullest expression of the image of God. Jesus is the full image of God. If we become like him, then we're truly being those uh, that God has created us to be. So a mute idol is useless, it's unable to say anything of worth and its followers will be like it. But by contrast, a follower of Jesus, the Word made flesh, they're identified by their words. So that's why Christian worship has at its centre, at its core, the Word of God. Both Christ himself, the Word in person, and the Word of God in the Scriptures. So in verse 3, we're told the ultimate benchmark. 
for knowing whether something or someone is truly spiritual is by the words they speak. Now, clearly it's, it's more than just whether I verbalise the three words, Jesus is accursed, or the three words, Jesus is Lord. Each of these is a very deliberate confession of faith. It's a summary of what we communicate in all of our speaking and all of our living. And in the first century, a confession of faith like this was far more significant, had much greater implication than it does for us today. To declare Jesus is Lord was to become a traitor to your family, to your religion, ultimately a traitor to Rome because the Roman Emperor claimed to be God. The Roman Emperor demanded that those in his empire declared Caesar is Lord. Jesus has no equals. He has no alternatives. To declare him as Lord is to reject all other so-called lords. To say that he is God and to say Jesus is Lord, that word Lord in the Greek uh, is the equivalent of the Old Testament, the Lord, Yahweh. So to say Jesus is Lord is not just to say he's the ultimate authority in my life, it's to say he is the Lord, he is God. And so you reject all other gods and all other idols. This is the first and the greatest and the most foundational gift that the Holy Spirit gives. The ability to confess Jesus is Lord. We can't truly confess Jesus unless the Spirit enables us and speaks through us. And so as the foundational gift, it's the foundation, the basis for all of the other gifts that the Spirit gives. All of the gifts have something to do with the proclamation of the Gospel that Jesus is Lord. So now our focus has been shifted away from ourselves and our spirituality and onto the risen and reigning Jesus. And that means that our terminology then must change. So see in verses 4 to 7, there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. See how he's moved away from the language of spirituality and instead uses the languages of gift and of the living dynamic activity of God among his people. We should think of these spirituals as gifts given by the person of the Holy Spirit, not as an expression of our personal spirituality. And not only that, we need to see that this ministry of the Spirit among us is not the Spirit on his own. It's actually a Trinitarian action. See how it is a variety of gifts but the same, sorry, varieties of gifts but the same spirit, a variety of services but it's the same 
Lord, whom we've just affirmed is Jesus, and a variety of activities or workings, all empowered by the one God, a reference to the Father. In true spirituality, it's not us doing it, it's God doing it. It's the Spirit who gives. It's the Lord Jesus who serves. It's God the Father who works powerfully. And so to make the point even clearer, in verse 7, he uses another phrase, manifestation of the Spirit. That means that the Spirit is already here. He's already among us. And his presence is made known as he manifests himself in each one of us in different ways. So we don't need to invite the Holy Spirit to turn up. We can't apply certain techniques to uh, get his power released or to make his presence come upon us. He's not a force to be manipulated or coerced or, or a commodity to dispense. He's the sovereign God. We can no more determine his actions than we can determine the actions of the Father and the Son. So these gifts, they're not commodities. They're not things that the Spirit dispenses. They are the Spirit himself, making himself visible in various ways. So verses 8 to 10 describe what, for the Corinthian church, this manifestation of the Spirit looked like. Now, it's not obvious in the English, but they're actually grouped into three categories. Paul uses two different words for another to separate them into these three groups. Uh, one, One another means another of the same kind, like we might compare different types of apples. The other another means another of a different kind, like we might compare apples and oranges. All of them are fruit, yet there's different kinds of fruit, and each fruit also has its varieties. So too, The gifts are manifestations of the Spirit, the one Spirit, yet they come in different forms and they serve different roles. But they all contribute to the primary goal of the Spirit's work, a unified church that testifies that Jesus is Lord. So let's look at each of these three groups The first is there in verse 8. The utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge. These are gifts that are related to understanding the mysteries of the kingdom of God that are now revealed and made known in the gospel. Wisdom and knowledge were already defined for us back in chapters 1 to 4 and we saw that True wisdom and knowledge is seen in Christ and him crucified. So Paul said back in chapter 2, 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So in this context the gift of knowledge means the the spirit-empowered ability to explain or to teach the truths of the kingdom of God in Christ crucified. And the gift of wisdom is the spirit-empowered ability to take these truths, the truths of the cross, and to apply them to life so that we may live in a way that's consistent with our confession of Jesus as Lord. The next group is from verses 9, from verse 9 through to uh, the uh, first part of verse 10. Faith, healing, working of miracles, prophecy and distinguishing between spirits. The key gift in this group, this kind, is prophecy because that's the one that involves speaking the word of God. It's in prophecy that we can say the words, Jesus is Lord. The ones listed before prophecy, faith, healing and miracles, they're the signs that are expected biblically to accompany true prophecy. A prophet would display, perform a sign to develop, to, uh, to indicate that they were empowered by God. So think of prophets like Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah and others, these prophets who performed signs and miracles that gave credibility to the word that they then spoke from the Lord. Of course, Jesus as the fulfilment of all the prophets, he did more signs than all the Old Testament prophets put together. He was constantly being asked, give us a sign if you claim to be, if you are who you claim to be. Think of the apostles in their prophetic ministry of declaring Jesus as the Messiah to God's people. God worked miracles through them not just uh, acts of wonder and, and in and of themselves, but it was always, the miracles were always to support the preaching of the gospel. But signs weren't the only test to apply to a biblical prophet. Israel was told that if a self-proclaimed prophet performs a sign, but then goes and says, hey, let's go and follow other gods then they were to reject them as a false prophet. So, while the sign pointed towards their authority as a prophet, the ultimate standard was, are they speaking the truth? So, the gift after prophecy, the gift of distinguishing between spirits, was also needed to know whether the prophets spoke by the Spirit of God or whether they were speaking by some other spirit or just by their own spirit. 
The main problem with many of the modern faith healers and the miracle crusades and things that we see today isn't just the fact that a lot of what we see is actually hype and very clever manipulation of the crowds, but so often the miracles are set front and centre and the gospel rarely, if ever, seems to be preached. People come to these things to, to, to these people because they want to receive a miracle not because they want to hear the message of the risen Jesus who calls them to repentance and faith who calls them to lay down their lives for his sake and for the gospel so these uh, these signs these gifts of faith and miracles and healing and the gifts of distinguishing between spirits are all there to support the proclamation of God's word in prophecy. Now we've already explored the nature of prophecy early this year and uh, we've actually printed out the the five sermons that were done in that series so if you want a, a refresher on that, grab one of these after the service. Just to summarise, what we saw was that prophecy is... Uh, still being exercised in the church in three ways. Through the preaching and teaching of the word by pastors and teachers, through us speaking to one another with the goal of encouragement and building one another up and encouraging and discipling one another. And from time to time, speaking the word of God to the church for a very specific time or a specific need when we're facing Uh, a time of decision-making or need God's special guidance and wisdom. But as with wisdom and knowledge, prophecy must always have Jesus at the centre. The gifts of faith and healing and miracles, in a sense, prepare people's hearts to be open to the word of prophecy and the gift of distinguishing between spirits ensures that only true words of prophecy are received and acted on by the church. The third kind of gift uh, is there in the second half of verse 10. Various tongues and interpretation of tongues. Now we'll see in more detail in chapter 14 that these two gifts are all about the gospel being proclaimed to the nations. There's actually no biblical basis for tongues being angelic languages. The only reference in the Bible to the tongues of angels is in 13 verse 1. And we'll see in a moment that Paul mentions them actually to discourage speaking in angelic tongues rather than to endorse it. Whenever angels speak... Throughout the Bible, it's always in human languages because their job is to communicate the word of God to human beings in a language that we can understand. There's there's a lot of different views on this across the whole Christian family. Uh, So I'm I'm willing to stand corrected on this, but this is at least where I uh, have come to and understand from the study of this passage and the wider scriptures. 
So tongues here is human languages. Spoken either with a spontaneous, miraculous, spirit-given ability like we see on the day of Pentecost or also speaking in the native language of the nations to which the gospel is going out rather than in Hebrew or Aramaic, the language that the Jews had heard the word of God in for 2,000 years. We see this when Peter first brought the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still saying these things, so he's speaking here to Gentiles, not Jews, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, oh, must be the end of verse 46 there. The point here is that the power of the Spirit was seen not in their ability to speak in tongues per se, but that they were extolling God in their tongues, in their languages. Remember, they were used to hearing the Gentiles say things like, Jesus is accursed. Suddenly these Gentiles were saying, Jesus is Lord, in their own language, not in the language of the Jews or the Bible. But more on tongues next week, because Paul talks more about that gift in chapter 14. We shouldn't see this list necessarily as prescriptive for every church or even as an exhaustive list. Uh, It's not the only place where this list, uh, list occurs. Here we have in Romans chapter 12, different gifts according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now it's worth noticing that the one gift that these two lists have in common, the one in Romans, the one in Corinthians, is prophecy. I suppose you could say he also mentions faith there too. But prophecy, prophecy was the primary sign of God pouring out his spirit on his people. What Joel prophesied, what was fulfilled at Pentecost, is that they shall prophesy. So the question for us shouldn't be, where's the smorgasbord of spiritual gifts out there and how can I get the ones that I want? Because we're told in verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Rather it should be how may I receive whatever the Spirit gives me in a way that honours the fact that it is the Spirit himself dwelling in me and making himself known in me and how may I use it to love my brothers and sisters. 
Jesus' primary concern for his church, as we've been seeing, is unity in the spirit, maturity in Christ, holiness as the spotless bride of the Lamb. And the gifts are merely a means to this end. They're not an end in themselves. The body analogy that Paul uses really illustrates that. You, not your gift, are a member of the body. No one is to consider themselves useless. We can all be used by the Spirit to build up the body. And likewise, no one is to consider another person useless, but rather to give honour, especially to those that the world might consider to be insignificant. Did you see in that list of gifts given to the Romans, contributing? Have you ever thought that putting your offering in the offering box on Sunday morning is a spiritual gift? The manifestation of the Spirit that has enabled you to be generous in giving. Regardless of how the Spirit manifests himself in and through the members, we are all members. So see how he reworks the list then in verse 28. Some differences here in this list, some gifts that he mentioned earlier aren't mentioned, others he's added in. But the emphasis here is not on the gifts, it's on the people. Ultimately, the gifts of the Spirit, as we've said, aren't commodities, they're not powers, they're not abilities, they are the people, one another, walking in the life and the power of the Spirit. If we lose this emphasis on the reality of the Holy Spirit at work in and through the people then we start treating the gifts as commodities. And it's entirely possible for us to try and do those things, those gifts, without them actually being true manifestations of the Spirit. We see that in the opening verses of chapter 13. What Paul is doing here is he's listing some of the things that the Corinthians thought made them spiritual people and he takes each of them to the extreme. So he says, I may speak in the tongues of men who can't do that, but what if I can also speak in the tongues of angels? That would be truly spiritual. I may have prophecy and everyone is encouraged to seek that, but what if I can also understand Not just some mysteries and some knowledge, but all mysteries and all knowledge. That would make me really spiritual. What if I have faith? And again, all Christians are encouraged to have faith. You're not a Christian unless you have faith. But what if by faith I can actually literally remove a mountain from its place? And I may have generosity. I may have that spiritual gift of contributing. I may give to the poor. What if I even go to the point of becoming a martyr and giving over my body to be burnt at the stake because 
I proclaim Jesus as Lord. Surely that would make me truly spiritual. So he's painting a portrait here of someone who's super spiritual, the kind of the person that the Corinthians, with their view of spirituality, were aspiring to be. And then he demolishes the portrait. He says that doing all of that without love would make them a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. They'd be nothing and they would gain nothing. What he's doing here is he's saying the goal of all of the gifts of the Spirit is the ultimate gift, the gift of love. Love is the primary fruit of the Spirit. It's the new command that Jesus gave. The ultimate miracle is that in Jesus Christ, a human being is taken from hatred and hostility and alienation and restored back to the image of God who himself is love and is enabled to be a person who loves. So what does it mean when he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts? Well, any gift can be the higher gift if I exercise it in the act of love towards my brother and sister in Christ. Should I give a word of prophecy? Should I pray for someone to be healed? Should I speak in another tongue? What's the basic criteria for knowing whether what's going on in me is the prompting of the Spirit to act in that way? Well, it can only be love. It can only be wanting to see the body of Christ built up to reach unity in him. It can only be wanting to see the body of Christ be faithful in teaching and proclaiming the message of Christ and him crucified so that he will be glorified in the church, so that in him the members of the church might be enabled to step into their full identity as sons and daughters of God. Let's pray.